0: Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. To take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond.
1: Welcome to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and I am very proud to bring you great material every week to give you tools, information, and incredible experts. On particular topics that will bring your life into a much more embodied, soulful, mentally, and heartfelt space that is based in joy and truth and a sense that you're driving your own life forward and you're not codependent or letting someone else take the reins. Today, we're going deep. We're going into the topic of infidelity. And anyone out there who has ever been on the receiving end or the giving end of infidelity can respect the complexities that this topic includes before we get started I also just want to remind everyone out there that I do receive your beautiful emails thank you for that I also want to make sure that you're connecting into our world of social media we are on Facebook at feelgoodnakedradio and we also are on Instagram at Feel Good Naked Radio. But let's jump into infidelity, a relationship topic that is worth putting great focus on. And today, I am so happy to bring back, by popular demand... Dr. Bonnie Comfort, many of you loved her last show and asked to please bring her back and she had decided that we could go into the topic of infidelity because she has a lot of information about it, working with couples for so many years. Bonnie Comfort received her PhD in clinical psychology from the California Graduate Institute in Los Angeles. She completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles She is licensed as a clinical psychologist in both California and Oregon, where she has been in private practice for many years, concentrating on the treatment of anxiety, depression, marital problems, and life transitions. Dr. Comfort's first fiction novel, Denial, was published in the U.S. by Simon & Schuster in 1995 and translated and published in six foreign countries. She is currently working on a memoir of her 33-year marriage and her recovery from the death of her husband in 2010. Welcome, Dr. Comfort, back to the
2: show. Thank you so much for having me again. I've been looking forward to this.
1: After your last show, it was really cool how people wrote to me and said there was something about the way you communicated that made them feel supported and nurtured. And I do think that's one of your great gifts is taking difficulty that sometimes is just too tough to talk about, but giving it a welcomed sort of loving Feeling so that you can go there and look at it. And I think with the topic today of infidelity, there's so much value in feeling held and nurtured as a listener out there, ready to get more info about this tough one. So why don't we start by having you tell us all what you think constitutes infidelity?
2: Um, well, I think there are two different kind of categories of infidelity. There is... Physical infidelity, where one partner in a relationship has a sexual contact with somebody outside of the relationship. And if it's a, a one time thing or a brief thing, it's a very different experience than somebody who commits emotional infidelity where there's a deep feeling of being in love with somebody else there's an ongoing third relationship in the situation and um the one of the partners feels they don't know whether they want to stay in the marriage or a partnership anymore so they're they're quite different there can be kind of casual outside sex it doesn't really impact the long term health of the marriage um, and very different if there's emotional involvement.
1: So, is it better in a situation where you've committed to a partner and you find yourself either pulled to that one night stand, or you are finding that coworker or friend emotionally alluring in a way that is not empowering your connection to your primary person? Is is that the time to have conversation with your primary partner, or is there a better way to go about how to own what's happening for yourself? That That's the big confusion to me about infidelity. Is it better left unsaid or said, or do you set up parameters in the very beginning that allow that to transpire, if it might, i.e. an open relationship. I mean, what are some of the better guidelines or rules that you would recommend? Um,
2: Well, I think a couple can, at the beginning of a relationship, discuss that kind of thing. But um, uh, the... Desire for somebody else, either g- getting much closer to them emotionally or wanting to have sex with somebody else is a red flag to you that you are dissatisfied in some way with your marriage. And it may be that you are unhappy in your marriage because you no longer feel physically or emotionally intimate with your partner and you therefore find somebody outside who seems to understand you in a way that your partner does not. And you're you're really vulnerable at that point to having a deep emotional affair with somebody else. The issue about whether a couple can tolerate um, agreed-upon outside sexual contact is a complex one, and it can be done because it does recognize the autonomy of the other person, and it can, in some instances, spark continuing sexual heat between the primary partners. But it's unusual in our country to have that be an agreed-upon arrangement. Most of us want um, somebody who is totally in love with us, dedicated to us, committed to us physically and financially, and consider it a horrific betrayal if one partner goes outside of the marriage.
1: Well, and and I think when we go back into the traditional concept of marriage, it is this thought, as you had shared with me, that, you know, will you forever take this person to be your only lover until the last breath that you take? Right. And And I think that that's kind of a wonderful idea, but... In my practice, working with certain people, I find that it's really unlikely that that is going to be smooth or possible for many. So then I guess the question becomes, with the modern configuration of relationship as we know it today, might there be a way to set up vows or understandings that create a different flexibility?
2: Well, absolutely I think there can be but it requires maturity on the part of both people. Um, because our when we're young, we what we're longing for is somebody else who gives us everything we want in one person. And um It takes a level of recognition that that's not possible in order to entertain the idea that, yes, we will have some brief outside relationships and, you know, I don't want to know what you're doing out there. I just agree it's okay for you to do it as long as you don't bring it home. That kind of thing takes more maturity and more recognition that each person has personal freedom and autonomy that is inviolable. that's, you know, usually that something comes later in one's 40s or 50s, not um, in our 20s and early 30s when most of us are finding a partner to um, settle down with and have children with.
1: Yeah, and that really does change the whole landscape of how to process infidelity depending upon the age and stage of the relationship. I've been on the receiving end of infidelity, and I think the thing that is so hard if you are on the receiving end is how to regain a sense of trust. Absolutely. And I- I want I want your help with that because in my story, I, both times with the infidelities that I was on the receiving end of, one was physical, one was emotional, both times I couldn't get my trust factor back. I couldn't find my feet again with this person, and both times it was the beginning of the end. So how does how does that trust piece work when uh, you feel no. just devastated? <laughs>
2: It's very difficult to regain trust, and it's incumbent on the partner who has cheated to go to every measure possible in order to earn your trust back, which means doing much more than saying, I'm sorry. It means really understanding what it feels like for you to have been... um, betrayed and to feel no longer desired or feel that there's somebody else your partner wants more than he wants you. So it requires listening to your anger about it. It requires um, explaining why that person, why your partner strayed, what it was that triggered that in him, how he will be different now in a way that makes it credible that he won't do it again. And that's the key piece. How do you how do you can conv- if you have cheated on your partner, how do you change in a way that makes your recommitment credible?
1: Oh, yeah. And so so let's let's talk about how to do that in a real step-by-step way. I mean, let's say you find out not because they tell you. That's the other thing. Like if your partner does not communicate at the point that it is happening, but you find out anyway because you're suspicious. In my case I was suspicious, so I started doing a little PI work behind the scenes, which mm-hmm. with these computers now it's it's you know, you really do find out more than you might want to know. Yeah. But once once you find out what you do find out that leads down that that road of infidelity, what would be like a a step someone could take when they think I I can never trust that person again? Like, how does one regain trust individually, no matter what they may say is happening or not going to ever happen again? Because really, trust is an inside job. So help me with that.
2: Well, it's an inside job, yes, you have to grow your own trust, but it also means that you want your partner to be much more open and honest with you than she or he has been in the past, which means you didn't tell me, you kept secrets, and the problem for you is that you then think, what else haven't you told me? What else are you keeping, you know, private and secret? So, Asking for a great deal of transparency from your partner is step one. But when you say trust is an inside job and you have to grow trust again, I don't think you can do it in the absence of recommitment from your partner who says, I want you to trust me again. I want to be trustworthy. Here's what I'm going to do to make myself trustworthy. I don't think you can, because I think if you just tell yourself, well, I just have to be trusting, it feels like you're, Um, saying I'm just going to put blinders on me I'm not going to look anymore to see whether my partner is being faithful and what you really can trust is honest conversations tell tell me partner what it was that was so hard for you about you and me that you had to go elsewhere let's talk about let's work on that
1: so I think the the curiosity I hold about that, though, is if you're a child that lived in a home where there was infidelity and you suffered through the pain of a parent who went through it, I think that's tougher to come by because, again, the seed is planted when you're a little person or you're a young adult, and I believe that that sets you up for less flexibility even if that partner is vocally honest and says the reasons and that it will never happen again, then I find it a tougher challenge to regain the trust muscle that's necessary to continue forward with that relationship.
2: Well, I think that's true. You are less flexible, and I think that uh, a child who comes out of a home where their parent, one of the parents had an affair, maybe they didn't stay together, maybe they recovered from it, that person starts a relationship with less trust than somebody who's from a home where infidelity was not an issue. And, you know, I can think of somebody in my practice who whose parent cheated on the, on the mother, and for her, she went into her second marriage saying, this is a deal-breaker for me. If you cheat on me, I'm done with you. And it sets up a um a very difficult circumstance because the partner's autonomy and sense of personal freedom is immediately compromised. And um I think when you say well what, you know what can you are less flexible, it requires you as the person who's been cheated on shifting to some extent your whole belief system that um that you could ever have control over somebody else. And it requires you changing to believe that you can respect your partner's autonomy if that person chooses again to cheat on you. You may say, I don't want this anymore. I want somebody who is more enlightened about what's going on inside of him or her and can... Choose a different path for dealing with relationship problems, and I think um, having being willing to have difficult conversations where each of you speak your truth and listen to the other helps a lot. But yes, you're less flexible when you have been cheated on once, or whether you've come out of a home where you know that was the case with your parents. And I do think that. You know, infidelity and the recovery from it is like a shattered vase. You can glue it back together, but it's never going to be the same as it was when it was first new.
1: Oh, that's interesting. You also just made me think that if you are a child that's been in a home where there has been an infidelity in your parents' relationship, that's a real ticket to getting help and getting counseling or coaching so that you don't carry the wound into your future relationships, or you may have a sensitivity to it, but you have a greater foundation for your own life, and there's not so much the cross-pollination or confusion with being the child of parents that went through that.
2: I absolutely think that's um, wise to process what happened and how your parent reacted to it has a lot to do with how you learn to think about it. If you have a parent who um, has been cheated on and is very vindictive and angry and the relationship winds up in divorce, it's very different than if you have a parent who has a more philosophical attitude about it and says, I, you know, I love your dad it was a moment of uh, you know of difficulty and and struggle between us but we have come to really love each other more and accept each other as we are and and we're going forward that's a very different model mm-hmm. that, you know so i think the the first scenario which is the more common one does put a greater demand on a child coming out of that home to to find a way to still trust and to uh, you know and to still want love and to believe that you can survive a relationship falling apart and go on
1: even if it's glued back together and not as shiny as when it first started yes yes so, I'm confused by monogamy. I'm going to tell you that right off the bat. I mean, I, and I think that's because I'm now in my mid 50s. When I was mm-hmm. in my 20s and 30s and 40s, I was so strict about it. I felt yeah. like monogamy is the only way if you're going to stay in a relationship that's healthy. And now I don't know what to make of monogamy because. There's this sense that as you get into the part of life where if you've had children or raised children and they're grown and they're gone and you're now in midlife as we define it or call it, there is a sense of awakening if you choose to take the path of really learning about your mind and your body and your soul. And there's something very sensual about that sort of attitude and choice. And then what I think that welcomes into a life is other people that are living in the same sort of embodied way, which can be dangerous territory if you're in a monogamous relationship with somebody else. Because I think monogamy is now, it's not just physical, it is a spiritual, emotional, mental thing. If you're connecting with someone spiritually, for example, in a really intense way, that can be as seductive as if you're attracted to their body. And I think as we get older and more awake, there are more temptations and greater risks with the model of monogamy. At least I'm finding that a lot with people that I coach and meet and and talk to that are in midlife. Are you finding that in your practice, that people in that midlife time or older are are finding it more difficult to stay monogamous versus when they're in their twenties and thirties, or is it not an age issue?
2: I, I don't really think it's so much of an age issue as a uh, the fact that we have been trained in this culture to believe that we should be able to get everything from one person, from one primary partner, and I think that's unrealistic. And um we keep thinking if we just find the right one, then we can fully love and fully commit and there will be no primary flaw in the relationship rather than thinking we need to learn better how to love and that mm. it isn't a question of finding the right one. It's a question of accepting that you can't have everything that matters from one person. So I think the model of monogamy is faulty partly because we're you know it was invented year many you know centuries ago by the primary three great religions and the reason for it was to ensure that the biological heirs of the father were clearly identified and that land would be passed down to the right people and, you know, women were chattel and you had to guarantee that they could be physically loyal to you. So, and that, you know, that is in all the three major religions in the Western world, this mandate for fidelity, and it's much more on the woman than the man. Um so uh, I don't think in other cultures where you know or sometimes we find you know there are many other cultures in the world, smaller ones, where monogamy is not the prized um, stricture in adult sexual relationships that it is in our culture and I think it's really we're just not built that way now we're living all of those rules were made when our life expectancy was about 40 years now we Mm -hmm. live to 70 or 80 or sometimes 90 well that's a very long time to be utterly loyal to one person that you may have met in your 20s and then you have no other crossing of that boundary for 50 years 50 or 60 years so I think it doesn't work as well as it used to, but I think the, the, um, when you're in your 20s and 30s, you're very focused on finding somebody to create a new life with that is financially secure and that will allow you to have children and to raise those children in a, in a predictable home. And so I do think that the need for commitment is much greater in that era of one's life. And as you get to your 40s and 50s, you know, maybe your children are gone, they've grown, they've gone to college, or they're out of the home, and you have become a different person than you were 20 years ago, and your values have shifted, and who you are has shifted. And it's a, um, it's a great... Relationship that can weather those changes, that can recognize the other person is different than he used to be or she used to be and loving those changes and being willing to adapt to each other's ways in the, and, you know, many of us don't make that adaptation and want a different person who fits better with who we are now than who we were when we were 25.
1: It's so true. I never thought of it from the perspective of the life expectancy being so much longer now. That's such an interesting way to realize that The times, they have changed. Oh, yeah, so much. And and the lifespan has changed. So I wanted to tell you about a case study I'm working with right now because I think it it opens up a different angle to what I was trying to say about this midlife time. I have a um, client, and she and her ex-husband, now ex-husband, they were married for over 20 years. They had their own biological children. She also took on his children from a previous marriage. So with that, there was great effort and commitment to blending their families, as we hear the word blended used often now. And as these children were all leaving the nest and pretty much one was the only remaining kid in the house... And she was very active with a group of girlfriends hiking on Saturdays. And he was active with a group of golf guys golfing on Saturdays. So they were recreationally sort of doing their own thing on the Saturday timeline. Anyway, she finds out that he is in a relationship with one of her hiking friends. And the way she finds this out is sort of like in a film where she is in a grocery store and one of the girlfriends says, I'm so sorry about so-and-so, and And your husband, and she's saying, what are you talking about? And it's one of those like Meryl Streep moments in Heartburn, (laughs) where she's in that chair getting her hair done I'll never forget that scene in Heartburn but so she goes home she confronts him and he very non emotionally says I don't love you anymore and I want a divorce Mm. now I hear this type of story more often than not and I think it's a story that has many layers it's not just infidelity it's a brokenness within clearly that marriage that was Building and gaining momentum before the moment that he's now flirting and pulled to her friend. So I guess the question I'm seeking or the answer I'm seeking with the question is, how do you detect that little split that's starting to occur with that partner that might be subtle, maybe is not in the danger zone yet, but there's a space that's building between you and that partner. Where is that? Where can one detect that before you're already flirting with a hiking friend of your wife? You know, like what, what is a warning sign that we great, can...
2: It's a great question. It's an absolutely great question. And I think uh, there are these little tiny fault lines in the marriage that start small. And build, and the the signs that you're looking for are your partner being disgruntled and angry or frustrated with something you've done, telling you, and then you fighting about it without actually being able to talk uh, openly and respectfully to each other, and to be able to listen to the other without blame. Mm. So. You know, there's that. And then there are, you know, there are people who don't feel able to have that kind of a conversation and they may shut down and you can see the sign that your partner is talking to you less or seems more withdrawn or. You know, is less flexible about doing things with you because no, he really would rather golf than go hiking, and he's not willing to put himself out anymore the way he used to when you were younger. So there's signs that he, you know, that a partner is not feeling as happy, and and um, you know that person well enough to know the difference between the way he behaved when you were happier and earlier in your relationship, and the way he seems now, kind of oh, no, he doesn't want to come to bed with you. He would rather stay up and watch another two hours of TV. Or, mm. uh, you know, <clears throat> no, he doesn't want to go to your mother's this weekend. And and th- th- those that's the trigger for you to start having conversations where you say, I feel your distance. I feel that you're not so happy as you used to be. Let's talk about that. What What can we do? Uh, Because what you are describing is a person who has given up on getting what he can from his wife and doesn't, he's tried, may have tried in his own way to fix the relationship and has gotten to the point where he's no longer physically or emotionally feeling close and he wants out of the marriage but he doesn't really have the courage to initiate a separation and so he's vulnerable to Mm. being attracted to somebody else or... You know you or you have changed in one of these long marriages, and there's aspects of yourself that you feel have been somewhat lost in this marriage and I see that a lot that um, you know all of us when we marry we and or even if it isn't a legal marriage when we're living together, we try to emphasize in the early stages the things that we have in common the ways that we are alike and we have shared values and shared tastes and the aspects of ourselves that don't fit so well in that relationship kind of go dormant and after a long time you begin to feel that you're not, some ways you're not being yourself anymore or you you know, you don't want to suppress that anymore. I mean, and I can think of a of a couple that I saw where they had, they really had a lovely relationship. They were very respectful of each other. They raised two beautiful children. But the husband always felt that his very social, vivacious wife dominated them in any kind of social situation. And he never got any, you know, attention or interest directed at him when she was in the room. And he Mm. gradually found himself gravitating towards another woman who thought he was the be-all and the end-all and wanted to hang on his every word. And he began to feel better and more empowered and realizing, well, you know, this is a way with my wife where I can't really be social. I can't really be myself because she overshadows me.
1: Oh, that reminds me of what Oprah always says, that, It's not that you have an affair with the person who has the perfect body. It's the one that lights up when you walk into the room.
2: Absolutely. And we want that. We absolutely want that.
1: Well, we do. we, We all want that.
2: Yes, yes. And if you've had it and you've lost it, rather than trying to figure out what you can do to make that happen again you figure the best thing to do is find somebody else and start over who who has that and we all in the early stages of an affair or you know courting to get married that's one of the big enticing things is that yeah. we but uh, but when you're talking about an affair it's a volatile combination of what's illicit and what's secretive and how exciting that is and how you have to make all the arrangements to see each other and there's danger involved and it's sexually very provocative in a way that ordinary marital bedroom sex is not.
1: Yeah, there's an erotica that is inherent in all the tentacles of the indiscretion.
2: Yes, yes. But your question, how do you see the signs that things are you in know, the early, early stages of not going well, they're pretty blatant. You just tend to ignore them because you don't want to give up ground. Yeah. So you don't want to yeah. give in.
1: Yeah. I know when I was um, going through my own heartbreak around it, I noted that my partner was much more excited to be on his own relaxing than creating relaxation collectively with me but at the same time I had become so moody and angry that that was what he wanted to do that I I think we were both creating a disastrous formula because no one wants to be around an unhappy partner and yet the unhappiness was because he didn't want to be around me. So it was sort of like, what do you do when you're in this horrible uh, dance of disconnection? And you can feel that it's not working to get closer, but the emotions are ruining the desire to get closer. And yet, the further away someone goes, the more upset someone can become.
2: That's so it's a, a vicious tough.
1: Circle. Yeah. It's a vicious, vicious circle. It's almost like you have to just start all over or create new ground rules or new vows or new understandings that give each other the sense that there's breathing room within the destruction or the bad behavior.
2: Well, yes, and in a certain way it requires you, in this situation that you're describing, you going into yourself and saying, why am I so angry? Why can I not um, accept that what he gives me is what he's capable of giving me. Why can I not invite him closer with with fun and laughter and love and being sexy rather than being moody and angry because I know it's driving him farther away. Mm. And you, you know, if you had gotten to the point where you said, you know what, I I this is not something I can get over I think I don't want to be with him anymore. It might have been different.
1: Hmm. It's so interesting the dance of two and, and we're speaking a lot in a heterosexual language, he, she, she, he. Yes. Do you do you find in gay um or trans relationships that this challenge is as alive and fervent or no?
2: Um, I don't have Uh, much experience with trans relationships but I have a lot of experience with gay and lesbian relationships and what I find is that the um, the boundary between um, the two separate adults in that relationship is much less well defined and there's a merging of selves and a merging um, uh, of closeness that makes Uh, autonomy and recognition of differentness more challenging.
1: Can you explain that a little bit more directly so I understand what you mean?
2: Um, Well the the let's let's take a lesbian relationship in a lesbian relationship there's a great deal of mothering that goes on and we you know in a heterosexual relationship we regress to that Age during sex but in other parts of our lives we seem more distinct and separate and it's easier to recognize when you're in a lesbian relationship the two of you feel in a certain way like two peas in a pod and there's mm-hmm. a merging of identities and you want the other person you're, you're upset if the other person is different from you don't like it you know i i have a lesbian couple in my practice now, and one gets angry with the other because she doesn't do the laundry the way I like it done. You know, Hmm. I'm just even on that practical level. You know, why do you think something different than I think? As if the two of you should really think alike on every single matter. Mm -mm. Yeah. It's funny. I think there's this thing
1: that happens when you first fall for someone, whether it's lust or love or like, that you love the similarities. This is heterosexual as well as I would imagine it would be if you were homosexual. The similarities feel good. You know, I love the color blue. You love the color blue. My favorite vegetable is XYZ. Oh, me too. My movies, my music. And then what happens is that in a way is this very dangerous codependent pattern that ultimately You have to figure out, wait, we are different people. We have very different desires and opinions and favorite things. And the difference is almost more important to understand than the similarity, I think.
2: I do too, because that desire for oneness and being the same is the early stage of romantic love that kind of mimics being a very young child again and feeling merged with a parent and feeling adored by the parent. And, and the adult requirement as that becomes um, impossible is that we discover our differences and we don't like it and we fight or we withdraw. Because we are scared at that point. We're never going to have that oneness again. We're never going to have all the things we want from this one other partner. And we want continuing proof of how much we matter and how great we are. We want to hear that from the partner. And so in order to move into more mature love, we have to recognize and accept the ways our partners are different from us. And... Believe that it's okay. The differences are okay. And mourn for the loss of this dream, of this perfect union where there's no dissent.
1: Mm, It
2: requires mourning for the loss of that because we cling to it so fiercely that in our culture, we would rather get a divorce, break apart a family, than give up that dream that we can be each other's perfect reflection.
1: Ah, it's so interesting. So I'm hearing a lot more about the concept of an open marriage. And where would you say in your world with helping many, many people in couples, where do you see the open marriage model? And do you think it is generally a positive way to approach the unknown?
2: Um, it, it, I think it's it's uh, treacherous waters. I think it's difficult to navigate because we have a kind of pr- primitive possessive streak in all of us. Um, we want to, you know, hoard the goodies. We don't want to share them. So, if a couple is upfront about it, talks about how we might do this either together. I mean, I have some couples who you know, engage in sexual activity with other people in the same room as they are. You know, and that feels fine to both of them because it's not about sneaking and lying around. It's about recognizing that we can have lots of different varieties of sexual fun, and it doesn't mean we don't love each other or want to go home together. So if you can agree on that, that's fine. The other way that you can do it is to say, you know what, I know that there are times when you're on the road or, you know, when you're at work when you might want an encounter with somebody else. And I want you to know I'm okay with it, but I don't want you to tell me about it.
1: Hmm. You
2: know, I respect your privacy in that way. And I think part of what we're talking about is... On the one hand, being up front and being willing to say, yes, let's agree to that. And the other, really being willing to accept that there's a level of privacy to people who love each other and who live together can have that may include sometimes having a sexual contact with somebody else. If it's really an outside love relationship, I think it's much more difficult.
1: Yeah, the emotional, if the emotional is attached yeah. to it.
2: Yeah. And, yet, and yet it's so personal. I
1: mean, I think it really goes back to this whole idea, which is what I built this entire show around, is know who you are, know what your limits are, know what you want, and have a self-trust that will enable you to... I think, have much more flexibility as you get older, as you head into a part of life where you're no longer in a parent role, and you can have a lot more options than when you're so rigid or structured in a patriarchal model that is outdated.
2: Well, I agree, and I think that you can say to a partner early on in a relationship, you know, that I'm not somebody who wants to be Utterly and completely monogamous physically for the rest of my life. I'm just, that's not mm-hmm. how I'm built. Um, I find other women incredibly attractive or I find other men incredibly attractive. And occasionally I may want to have, a, you know, a, a, an alliance with somebody else. And I want to know that you can tolerate that that you will recognize my ultimate freedom and autonomy and that it's it, that you will not fall apart and become furious and storm out and leave me if you discover that. It's
1: interesting as you're saying that because I think I'm one of those people that wants to be able to do that, but I don't know if I'm really capable of it. And I'm wondering if, I mean, I guess there are certain people that non-monogamy is a deal breaker, whether it's emotional or physical. And I think I think I may be a monogamous person and and yet I want to be open to being more flexible in that way. But I think for some of us it it really is a deal breaker, even though the idea that you just described sounds so attractive to me and mature, I just don't know if I have it in me to be able to tolerate
2: that. Well, I I don't know that it's ultimately so attractive or mature for most of us to do that because, you know, there's a great deal of meaning that's attached to a relationship with a third person. And we all want to feel safe with our partner, that there is a sacred um, space that we share only with this person. So... Uh, it's a different equation. If you discover, particularly if you discover it, it's not agreed upon up front, but you discover it accidentally and it's been clandestine, there's a feeling that that the bond between us has been broken. That you are now giving to somebody else what I thought was only for me. And I don't know that any of us really um can tolerate that unless we don't want the constriction of being obligated to give that ourselves. And there are some people who really don't want to be possessed. They don't want to feel that they can never have anybody else other than who they're committed to. And so much the case that they say right up front, hey, look, I'm somebody who can't be faithful. Um, you need to know that right now. <laughs> Yeah. Um but I think most of us want this dream of of um emotional more emotional really than physical commitment. I think a lot of people can tolerate somebody who's had a you know a one night stand in a hotel in another city uh you know, with her partner but it's very different if you feel like this guy who was you know with your client who was on hiking that not only has he had an ongoing affair with somebody but with a close friend of hers
0: and it Ouch. feels like
2: yeah. a horrible betrayal and to on two counts but it gives you the feeling like oh i don't even know who i'm with anymore yeah. What 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 major swath of your personality has come out in relation to this other person that I don't know anymore, and that's different. There are there are times when people have affairs because they are. Um, distressed about aging, for example, and they suddenly are aware that, you know, do I still have it? Could I attract somebody else? And, you know, I think of that as the high school reunion
1: mm. <laughs> vulnerability
2: because, you know, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> they sort of go back and find somebody who was in love with them when they were in high school and still can remember how beautifully they moved and how you know, silky their hair was when they had it
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. and
2: and that so it's sort of a way of restoring this younger image of yourself. so there's different reasons why people stray at different times in their lives, but I don't think most of us are really built um, for multiple relationships, although I have to say when I think about France, for example, where it's recognized that um, people can have a, a, a long-term uh, outside partner and still be respectful, still be committed to the family, still support the family and support the children, that it it's less socially damaging and it feels less of a betrayal than it does in our culture where we have cling so fiercely to this dream of monogamy.
1: Well, and I think the key word is betrayal. And and I do know in our country several stories where there's a long-term married couple, they haven't slept together in decades, one or the other has a lover, and that is a very exciting, sexual, um, passionate connection. There's not a lot of dialogue between spouses about that third party, but it's understood that that is what works in this triangle between them that is doable for all parties included. So it's, it's really an open book as to how you want to live your life. But when you say the word betrayal, I think when anyone feels betrayed, it is such a core distressing, non-trusting feeling that it is, recovering from the betrayal that is larger than the story that was betraying <laughs> does that make
2: yeah and yes i agree i think that's why you know where the culture is more forgiving and accepting of uh, you know another partner in addition to the one you're married to it doesn't it first of all it doesn't feel like such a betrayal and the you know and the the spouse may know about the relationship and kind of look the other way. I've seen that over and over. I I know somebody who had a 50-year marriage with a long-term lover all those years, and the wife just looked the other way because she was also getting what she wanted. She was getting a husband and a family structure and financial support and social acceptance, and that was more important to her than her husband's physical or emotional fidelity because he managed to, he managed to fulfill both women's <laughs> needs. But mm. you know they think about that as a as a three-cornered stool. You know the marriage is supported by this third relationship. Hmm. Well, oh, it's, it's th- so I mean, interesting. A third person. Yes. Yeah. That it allows a third person can allow one partner to stay in this long-term family commitment whereas perhaps if it was just the two of them it might not it might not last
1: so in a way in that story infidelity is not a marital deal breaker it's a a marital aid it keeps it keeps the family intact it keeps the spouse having Christmases and Hanukkah and birthdays together but then that also requires that that lover the third party he or she has to be comfortable with the fact that they may never have Christmas Hanukkah or birthdays. You yeah. know, so there's a yeah. lot of
2: adjustments
1: that get made in that formula. But for
2: some, that works, yes. For some, it does work. And it may be that the third outside person has been through a marriage and divorce and doesn't mind living alone, loves the visits from the from the married uh, lover and is, fine to go on and and live her life separate from that and it works for all three of them but it's not an easy thing to 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 accomplish not at all Um, before
1: we have to go I wanted to ask you with all of your experience and your long term marriage what would you say are the things that you've noticed over the years that would be keys to a healthy, happy marriage what 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 comes up if I say to you, what would be the keys to a happy, healthy marriage
2: Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is treating each other with respect, and that 's on both sides, and that means i mean, if you think about what 's happening in our country right now, you can see that sides that have taken very staunch commitment on one side that's contradictory with the other have stopped being able to have meaningful, respectful dialogue. And that happens in a marriage. And what you need to have a good marriage is to give the partner room to be different from you, to disagree with you, and to be able to treat that difference with respect, to listen to it, to make allowances for it, to accept that you cannot have everything that matters to you in this one person, and you need to, to some extent, mourn for the loss of that dream and accept lasting love requires acceptance of differences.
1: Hmm. Oh, boy, is that great, because that takes us in a full circle to, instead of everything being the same, agreeing, loving, having the greatest tastes that are the same exact tastes, being more honorable about the differences, yeah, and really giving each other permission, acceptance, and love that your differences are okay. I'm you, I'm me, I'm
2: me, you're you, and we're not the same. Exactly. Rather than thinking, I'm going to toss this person aside and I'm going to go out looking for the right one who exactly fits with who I am and who believes the same thing I do and wants all the same things and loves the same food. And then the whole process starts over again because eventually the differences become discovered and then you start fighting and withdrawing. And and so rather than cyclically doing that over and over, being able to... See the differences, respect the other person, and also understand why they became the way they are, why they became who they are. I mean, I think a lot of empathy is required in a long term marriage where you understand that when your partner disappoints you in a certain way, it isn't malicious. It's because this is how she learned to be in a love relationship, this is what she knows is love. You know, you might have somebody who was, for example, in regard to physical illness, you might have a person who was raised in a home where they were expected to buck up and um, look after themselves and don't complain, and they were not nurtured at a time when they were ill. So when they go into a love relationship with somebody in adult life, that's how they treat their partner. Their partner may have been raised in a home where there was a lot of solicitation and nurturing and soothing when they were sick, so they feel angry and disappointed and blaming. Why can't you be good to me when I'm sick? And it's important to understand that person doesn't have that in their repertoire. That's not what they learned as love.
1: Oh, Dr. Bonnie Comfort, thank you so much. I'm sorry to say we have to go. I hope you'll be back. Thank you. And as we always end each show,
0: you complete you. Thank you. you for listening to feel good naked radio with Laura redmond please join us live again next thursday at 10 a.m pacific time and 1 p.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel until our next show be you and feel great in your own skin